Welcome into another episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. I'm Dan Hope, joined by Colin Haas Hill. It's now officially the college football offseason as Monday night, the season ended with the national championship game. LSU beating Clemson 42 to 25. You asked us for our predictions last week. I got it wrong. Colin, you got the winner right, although I think we were both expecting a little bit closer game. Yeah, and it seemed like for a little while it was going to be that, and then I think everybody sort of realized, like, wow, LSU's a real real deal. And Joe Burrow's a real deal. Yeah. That's that's a real big takeaway for me. And we've talked about Joe Burrow before. If you're an Ohio State fan, you, you probably already know a lot about the Joe Burrow story, but certainly worth talking about for a minute here because – He capped off what will absolutely go down as one of the greatest individual seasons in college football history with his performance last night, or Monday night, against Clemson. He had 463 passing yards and five touchdowns, also had 58 rushing yards and another touchdown. For the season, he had 60 passing touchdowns, becoming the first football bowl subdivision player to ever throw 60 touchdowns in a single season and 5,671 passing yards. Those are eye-popping numbers, and they're especially eye-popping because we're not talking about a school like Hawaii or Texas Tech that's been known for having an air raid offense. We're talking about LSU, a school that's typically been known for great defenses and great running backs, but has typically been known for weaker passing offenses. And for Joe Burrow to have the kind of year that he had this year, going 15-0, winning a Heisman Trophy, I don't know that anyone saw this coming when he transferred out of Ohio State in the summer of 2018 because he faced the possibility of never starting a game for the Buckeyes. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of hyperbole thrown around this Joe Burrow story, and it was even funny to hear Kirk Herbstreit on the broadcast say he was a two-star recruit, which, like, I feel like if he happened to return for a sixth year next year that he'd, like, be a one-star recruit finally. Like, we just keep on going down and down. It's actually fairly incredible. But, like, to not go that far, but but to think back at where he came from, it's absolutely insane. Like, I think the hyperbole works here because there's just nothing – there's nothing about this that's normal, nothing about this that I expected, nothing about this that I really saw coming at all. Like, I thought when he went down to LSU, you know, it it seemed like it seemed like a fair fit for, for both parties. They really needed a quarterback. Joe Burrow really needed an opportunity. It seemed like he'd go down there, and, and he's a guy who I think has always thought that he's a really good quarterback. But even back when he was a quarterback for Ohio State um, behind uh, JT Barrett and whatnot, I... I, I just never saw him as this guy who's going to win the Heisman Trophy. I always thought that he would be a really solid quarterback, maybe be really good. But I had never in a million years would have projected this, and that's why this whole thing's so amazing. It has the storybook ending. It has everything. I guess literally the only thing that would have made this entire story better from his perspective, not literally everybody listening to this, would be if somehow Ohio State was in that title game and they matched up. Like That would have... I don't know, that would have just been absolutely mind-blowing if, if that had happened, and, and it almost did, as we all know. Um, but every everything else in the storybook ending is, 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 has happened, which just, if you think back to what it was two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, it's like, how could any anyone have seen this coming? Well, and the other thing that's astonishing about it is you look at his numbers from last year. His first year at LSU. He was what I thought he was going to be last year. You exactly. Know? Last year at LSU, he completed 57.8% of his passes for 2,894 yards, 16 touchdowns. 
solid year. He he looked solid. He's a good quarterback. I think we all expected some progression this year just because he had a year of experience under his belt. He got there last summer. But you, you, you talk about going into this year, this was a guy who, let's say he had decided to enter the NFL draft last year for some reason, he probably would have been a day-free draft pick, a guy who probably would have been viewed as you know, probably a backup in the NFL, maybe a guy if he develops the right way could be a starter, but probably a backup. Now he's going to be the number one overall pick in the NFL draft, which again, it's astonishing because I know we fought it and I know the prevailing thought was I thought Joe Burrow could be a successful starting quarterback if, if he got the opportunity at Ohio State, and it's it's not that. And I, you know, I always thought he looked good in the spring games, and I and I, I always thought if he got a shot, he would do well. But I also thought, and I think most people thought coming out of the spring of 2018, that Joe Burrow was a good quarterback, but Dwayne Haskins was a better quarterback. And it's, especially when you think about NFL potential and in terms of those physical tools, I think everybody thought that. Dwayne was at a different level in terms of his potential and his ability. And now we've seen Joe Burrow go to LSU and surpass what Dwayne Haskins did at Ohio State. And that doesn't take anything away from what Dwayne Haskins did at Ohio State last year because, again, the year that he had at Ohio State last year was the best passing season in Ohio State history. But to think about what Joe Burrow just did and to think about the fact that two years ago in 2017 – both of these guys were backups at Ohio State. They were both backing up JT Barrett, who, of course, has set most of the career records at Ohio State and just speaks to what a decade it's been for Ohio State football at the quarterback position. But just a, just a phenomenal season for Joe Burrow that I'm happy for him, and I think the majority of Ohio State fans are happy for him, which I think is really cool to see because it's not always that way. But it, it is astonishing. It's really funny. Um, honestly, I don't know if every school has this or if it's just unique to Ohio State, but you go back and look at some of the old quarterback rooms and you have like the old room with Cardale and Braxton and JT and you have all those guys in that one room. And then you also look back at the room. There's now a room that has uh, had – JT Barrett, Dwayne Haskins, Joe Burrow, and Tate Martell. And I remember I actually went back on, on my Twitter and I found this. I think it was from like 2017. And if you had asked me back then which of these three guys is going to win the national championship and pick them in order, I would have said I would have said Joe Burrow last, in all honesty, because I thought that if Same. Joe Burrow's start, starting opportunity would come, it might come as, I don't know, like a redshirt senior at Ohio State, or I thought that there was a decent chance he'd eventually have to transfer. Never in a million years that I think what played out would is actually what would happen. The hypothetical that everybody asks now is, did Ohio State make the right choice in 2018? What if Joe Burrow had won the starting job? How good would he have been compared to Dwayne Haskins? I'll say for that part of the question, I, I still don't think you can go back and see what Dwayne did at Ohio State in 2018 again the best passing season in Ohio State history, and it's not close. I don't think you can look at what Dwayne did in 2018 and say Ohio State screwed up. I I also don't know, we, we don't know how Joe would have done in 2018, because again, his numbers, his numbers at LSU in 2018 were just okay. If he was guaranteed to stay two years at Ohio State, 
which again, he might not have because if he had had Ryan Day last year instead of not Joe Brady at LSU last year, he might have put up those kind of numbers and been an NFL first-round draft pick last year. But there is the question of would you have been better off with Joe Burrow this year instead of Justin Fields? And that feels ridiculous to say because Justin Fields was also a Heisman finalist. That's how good Joe Burrow was this year. Still, I think this was a win-win for everybody at the end of the day. For Ohio State to have Dwayne Haskins and Justin Fields, two of the best quarterbacks Ohio State's ever had, it's really hard to question how that works. And you're going to have another year of Justin Fields next year. It's pretty remarkable how Ryan Day finessed this, Ryan Day and Urban Meyer finessed this position where they let the 2019 Heisman Trophy winner, national champion quarterback, get out of their room. And I really honestly think they, they made the right decision, which is a crazy thing to say. But, but, I, but I really do believe it. I mean, their thinking at the time was, was probably a lot similar to what we were, were thinking, and it's that, you know, Dwayne Haskins is just special. The, I remember the, the first press conference Urban Meyer had when, when, when he signed Dwayne Haskins. It was like he was the best-throwing quarterback that he had seen. And it turned out he was the best-throwing quarterback that Ohio State had ever seen in its history. He put up numbers that no one has ever seen before. So I, I, I don't think that Ohio State really made the wrong decision there. I just think that it turned out that Joe Burrow developed in a way that really no one could have foreseen. I think that I think Ohio State probably thought really, really highly of him, and it, and it really hurt to let him go back, back, back when they, back when that had to happen. Because Joe Burrow wanted to play, he wasn't just going to sit around and be a backup. And if Dwayne Haskins had returned, just sat on the bench for two years and ended his career, that, that just wouldn't happen in Joe Burrow's mind. So that, I, I really do think they made the right choice. Because then you come back, and Ryan Day lands Justin Fields, and right now. Like I, I, if I were Ohio State this year, I probably would have had, rather had Joe Burrow than, than Justin Fields. I just think Joe Burrow had a better season than Justin Fields. But shoot, you get Justin Fields again next year, and Josh Justin Fields is the Heisman Trophy front runner right now for next year. It's it's hard to fault either team, and it's remarkable that that these two massive programs are in a position where essentially one got a Heisman Trophy winner from the other, and the team's fans that lost the Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, and, and watch them go win a national championship elsewhere aren't just gritting their teeth and just pain. And again, you think back to the hypotheticals, I and mean, the other hypothetical is you think back to 2017 when JT Barrett was entrenched as the starting quarterback, and there, of course, there were people back then who, who didn't think JT Barrett should be the starter. Reality is Urban Meyer was never going to bench JT Barrett, so it just wasn't going to happen. But the interesting hypothetical there is Joe Burrow broke his hand during preseason camp that year. And if that and before that, him and Dwayne were neck and neck in a backup quarterback battle. And again, I think a lot of it is we were hearing a lot of this back in 2017 and even in the spring of 2018 when, when Urban Meyer was talking about how close those guys were. I think we honestly thought it was lip service. I think we honestly felt like Dwayne was the guy who was going to be next. And, and we, we didn't necessarily buy in to how good Joe Burrow was and now we see it and now we go it probably wasn't lip service it probably really was neck and neck and these were two special quarterbacks that they had and the reality is this is going to happen at Ohio State we just look to the future they just brought in two highly touted quarterbacks this year in CJ Stroud and Jack Miller there's a good chance that one of those guys is going to transfer somewhere else and he's going to have success somewhere else and that's just the way it's going to work especially in the modern era of college football where really Joe 
actually stuck it out at Ohio State longer than most quarterbacks do these days, where he stuck it out for three years, he got a shot, he graduated, and then made a decision that I think everyone would agree was the smart decision for him to make at the time, and it worked out as well as anyone could have imagined. But these kind of things are going to happen. And truthfully, you, of course, don't ever want to lose a guy like Joe Burrow and then see him go win the national championship at another school. But you you want this to happen to the extent where you want to be recruiting enough talent where you have too many guys to get him a field versus the opposite. And you just look at the quarterback play Ohio State has had over the past decade, and we're going to talk a little bit about our all-decade football team later in the show. But, I mean, Ohio State's just had an incredible run of quarterbacks from Braxton Miller to J.T. Barrett, Cardale Jones, Dwayne Haskins, Justin Fields. And when you have that kind of run, there's going to be guys who get away. There's going to be guys who just don't get their opportunity. Didn't happen for Joe Burrow at Ohio State. It did happen at LSU, and the rest is history. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key lessons to take away from this is, and and this is just, I think what you look around in college football, um, and this applies to a lot, is, you know, when you look at when you look at your roster of quarterbacks, you just just play the best one who you have at that time, and figure out the rest later, and and try and position yourself to where when that quarterback leaves, you can get another quarterback right in there. But you know, when you have Dwayne Haskins and Joe Burrow. At the moment, at that time, they made the call that Dwayne Haskins was 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 better at that time, and he was a better person to lead them at that time. And I think it was correct. And you knew that you were going to lose Joe Burrow. And honestly, if you if you had picked Joe Burrow, Dwayne Haskins probably would have left too. So it's and not if they like, had made that decision and Dwayne had left at the time, there would have been a lot of people questioning yeah, that decision. Yeah, yeah, especially after what he did against Michigan. Exactly. That's exactly what I was just going to say. Like you just have to play in the moment. And you know what? Like last year, Dwayne Haskins was better than Joe Burrow. I think they made the right call. They couldn't have thought, like, all right, here, we're going to play the long game. We're going to play the worst quarterback this year. And then in 2019, this guy's going to win the Heisman. Like, they can't do that. You, and you couldn't tell Joe, well, we think Dwayne's only going to be here for one year, and then you're going to be the starter next year. Yeah, because also that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> right. They didn't realize how. Yeah. I remember Urban talking about how it was, like, week three or four of a season, and then he went to Pantone and he said, we're going to need a quarterback for next year because they knew Dwayne was going to leave. But they didn't know that in April. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? Like, they responded better than anyone could have possibly responded. They went out and got Justin Fields, and they're in this position right now. And, and that's, honestly, that that's what that's what makes Ohio State so special right now is that they can make that decision. They can go get the best, understand that you lose someone really good, and then go replace them with someone who could win the Heisman Trophy next year and was a Heisman Trophy finalist in his first year as a starter. And, like, that, that, to me, that to me matters about where Ohio State is as a program right now. And as talented as C.J. Stroud and Jack Miller are coming in, you'd much rather be in the position right now of having Justin Fields back for another year than losing Joe Burrow and wondering who your quarterback's going to be next year. So they're in a good spot. We agree here, I think. It all worked out for Ohio State. Worked out really, really well for Joe Burrow. And we're happy for him. The bigger hypothetical that I think Ohio State fans are still wrestling with and probably will still be wrestling with for a long time is if Ohio State had beaten Clemson, if that game had gone the Buckeyes' way, which it was certainly close to happening, would Ohio State have had a different result against LSU? And and I said, I said all throughout the playoffs, I said I thought whoever won 
Clemson or Ohio State would beat LSU. And I was wrong about that. And I will say now that after seeing how impressive LSU was against Clemson, I think LSU was the best team in the country. I don't think Ohio State would have beat LSU. I think they were capable. I think it would have been a closer game, I think. But I think LSU, that offense they had was one of the best we've ever seen in college football. And I think they showed me last night, and this is why we play the games, they proved just how good we are, how good they are. And we're never going to know exactly what would have happened because that LSU-Ohio State game is never going to happen. The season's over now. We're never going to know, and that's going to be the hypothetical that's always going to linger out there. But I come out of Monday night's game thinking, if, if Clemson had beat LSU, then I think everyone absolutely would have come out of that game thinking, man, Ohio State could have won a national championship. If even if it had been a really close game, LSU won, I think people definitely would have would be thinking, man, I think Ohio State could have won a national championship. And they could have. They certainly could have. You always want that opportunity. You always want to be there. Not getting there and not getting that opportunity is the worst feeling, especially if you're a player or a coach. But I also feel very confident after watching the game last night and seeing what LSU did that LSU was the best team in college football this year. And you certainly wanted to be there. You certainly wanted to beat Clemson because that's the that's the monkey that's just going to linger on Ohio State's back un, until it until it beats Clemson. But I think coming out of it, seeing what LSU did against Clemson, I, I think LSU was the best team in college football this year. And I think I don't think anybody was going to stop that offense this year. And I think it would have been a tough game for Ohio State. Yeah. Um... I mean, I remember right. I remember our first podcast after Ohio State lost to Clemson. I, I came out of that just saying, like, I think that Ohio State was the better team. So, thinking that and 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 remembering all the mistakes that they made against Clemson, like, I I think that the game could have been closer if Ohio State played it. Um, now, would they have won? I, I don't know. I mean, LSU is a ridiculous offense, like in a way that I thought. Clemson was going to pose a, a really stiff challenge to Ohio State. No, no, no. LSU would have taken that to the next yeah, we level. Saw that. LSU would have been like something they had never, ever seen before. At the same time, I also don't know that, that – I also will forever wonder what would have happened if um, LSU's wide receivers went up against Ohio State's defensive backfield and, and they also had to block Chase Young. And, like, that to me is the, is the big hypothetical that – this game sort of hinges on, and it's something that we'll never know. And I would love to see sometime uh, if there's a way when we're uh, 80 years old that we can replay history. Like, let's go back and, and figure out what would have happened then because that is that, – that, that will forever be the what if to me of, of this one. I, I think, like, if you, wanted to, if you wanted to make me choose, sure, I, I think LSU maybe wins now because this is, this is an offense that Ohio State had never, ever seen before this season. Um, at the same time – I just think Jeff Okuda, Sean Wade, Damon Arnett, that trio, if they're all healthy, if they're all good to go, them against LSU's wide receivers and Joe Burrow would have been something else. Now, if we want to play this actual hypothetical, I'll also say, you know, 
I don't know that Justin Fields would have been really healthy for this game, and I think that would have really affected Ohio State's offense, and, and I think that would have held him back. Um, you can play this what-if game all the time, but like that's, that, that's another thing that I think would need to be factored into this. One thing we do know for sure is there are three elite, elite college football teams this year in LSU, no doubt. Clemson, and Ohio State. Last Monday night's result, we're recording on Tuesday, so I keep slipping up, but <laughs> Monday night's result, does not change that. If you could have put any of these, any of these three teams together, and I don't think any one of them has beaten the other team ten times out of ten. I think all three of these teams were great. I think LSU, by virtue of winning the the national championship, clearly finishes at number one. Clemson, regardless of what you think about the way that game played out. Clemson, they're, they're, they're a number two team this year because they did beat Ohio State, and Ohio State's number three. But these were three elite teams that I think in most years, any one of them could have won the national championship. They were all demonstratively better than everyone else. I think I think if Ohio State had been the one seed, I think Ohio State would have blown out Oklahoma. I think if Clemson had been the one seed, I think it would have blown out Oklahoma. It, it does go back to the conversations we had during the season about why is seeding important. We saw why it was important because I think Oklahoma was clearly the, the worst team out of the four, and I think those three were just so much better than everyone else in college football this year that LSU certainly had an advantage playing Oklahoma. Did it change what I think the ultimate outcome would be? Maybe not because I think LSU was that good, but certainly – if Ohio State had been the one seed and LSU had been the two, and I think there's a good, I think we probably would have seen an Ohio State LSU national championship game, and that would have been fun to see. So, can't change history now. It's all hypothetical, but I, I, I will say that that even though the season didn't end the way it wanted to, Ohio State still an elite team this year still a team that should be remembered as a, a fantastic Ohio State football team and a team that if things had gone another way was certainly capable of winning a national championship even though it came up a little bit short throwing it forward so the thing that happens after every single national title game is in the minutes after it you get all kinds of stuff from the way too early. Don't say it. I, I, was, the, I knew you were going to say it. Yeah, the way too early top 25s from next year. You get the championship odds. You get the Heisman odds. So there is some heavy Ohio State presence on, on all of these. It seems like every single rankings that come out right now have Ohio State at number two, basically, um, and, and Clemson at number one. And you, what, what are the national championship odds? They opened, according to Bavada. They opened, Clemson opened at plus 250, Ohio State opened at plus 255. So basically neck and neck. As of Tuesday afternoon, though, Ohio State had dropped to plus 400. So Clemson right now opening up as the early national championship betting favorite, followed by Ohio State, Alabama coming in third at plus 500, and then LSU coming in fourth at plus 700. You know, it makes sense. I mean, uh, that's how I would have it. That's how I would have it. And, And also, like, at this time of the year, 
I don't think everybody has dived into what the left guard situation on all these teams is. Let's be honest. Like this is you look at Trevor Lawrence and you look at Justin Fields and you think about who the teams lose and you, you see that Ohio State and Clemson have enough coming back behind them that, that people still think that these teams are going to be the best of the best. Shoot, it makes sense in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, I think the popular project, projection that everyone's going to make preseason is going to be Clemson and Ohio State <laughs> yeah. and the national championship game. And certainly... It's hard to, hard to not make that one. I think that's honest. the game that if you're Ohio State, if you're Ohio State fan, that's the game you want to see and you want to win it because certainly Ohio State is going to be going for a national championship in 2020. And anything less than a national championship is going to be viewed as a disappointment next year. Not that it wasn't already this year, but now that you've proven you can get fair with Ryan Day, now that you've proven you can get fair with Justin Fields, there's no doubt that a national championship is going to be the expectation in 2020. The same is going to be true for Clemson. We, we know how Clemson thrives off of fuel, thrives off having a chip on their shoulder. So uh, the odds are very good on Clemson being back in a national championship game next year. And certainly, I think if you're an Ohio State player, you want to win a national championship, but you also really want to beat Clemson. By the way, it, it is funny that you said they they fuel off of being the underdog. They're literally the national championship favorite at uh, plus two fifty. But for they next will. Year. I know. They will <laughs> use what happened on Monday night as fuel yeah, for the Dabo Sweeney. Whatever you think of him, he is a master at finding doubters, finding ways to spin his team as being the underdog, the David versus Goliath. He's a master at that. And he's going to find a way to do it again. Yep, he will. Um, at, I guess if you want to say the underdog, they do have the underdog in, in the Heisman discussion right now. Um, Justin Fields, your uh, Heisman frontrunner in in mid-January. Yeah, I was actually pretty surprised when I saw the opening odds on Bavada last night because Justin Fields opened as the favorite at plus 175. That's not what surprised me. What surprised me was Trevor Lawrence the second in the odds, he opened at plus 550. That's a much bigger gap than I expected. With that being said, as of Tuesday afternoon, Justin Fields had dropped slightly to plus 205. Trevor Lawrence had already moved up to plus 400. So some quick market correction there. No surprise, Velvet Bay RV2, clear preseason favorites. Nobody else is even close. As we know from Joe Burrow, as we know from Kyler Murray, most likely somebody who we're not thinking of now is going to emerge at, among the front runners this fall and might even steal the trophy from both of them. That's the way it works a lot of times, but I don't think there's any question going into next season. Those two quarterbacks, Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence, they're going to be in the spotlight. And once again, they have a reason why those are the two national championship favorites for next year. Yeah, we spent all of December talking about Fields and Lawrence, but in all honesty, that's really what the narrative for the next eight or so months is going to be leading up to the season. It's going to be Fields and Lawrence. I just, it is interesting, like just looking at the odds, which really tells you what I think people widely expect uh, of, of, I guess, the quarterbacks um, for next season. And it's Fields and Lawrence are are clearly the top two, and, and no one has better odds than twelve to one, and those. Uh, at least they opened as Adrian Martinez and, and Spencer Rattler, who's not even the name starter at Oklahoma yet. And I think that really tells you why Ohio State's ranked so highly and, and where they're at going into net season with Justin Fields is people would kill to have a building block like Justin Fields. I mean, they're going to have to replace a lot on their team. 
um, there, are, there are some areas that I think are, are legitimate, like potential weaknesses that, that are going to be dissected throughout the next few months, and, and they should be. But as long as you have Justin Fields, you are right there, and you're going to be there. And as long as he stays healthy, they should be back in the playoff. Like that, that, that should be the expectation for this team, and, and I think it will be. Yeah, I mean, reality is you look at the college football playoff this past season, the four quarterbacks in the college football playoff were Joe Burrow, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and Jalen Hurts. I would say those were the four best quarterbacks in college football, period, this past season, and that is not a coincidence. If you have an elite quarterback, your chances of making the college football playoff are far better than any team that doesn't have an elite quarterback. So Ohio State, whether you say one or two, there's really no argument right now that Ohio State is one of the two best quarterbacks in college football. And that's a spot you really like to be in if you're Ryan Day and the Buckeyes. No doubt. Um, you want to talk recruiting for a few minutes? Yeah, we're going to bring in our guest, Zach Carpenter, our recruiting analyst for his, his second appearance on RealPod Wednesdays, our first repeat guest here. We're going to bring him in and talk to him a little bit about some of a recent movement on the recruiting trail. All right, Zach, welcome back to Real Pod Wednesdays. Have you recovered from the Chiefs game yet? Uh, no, I'm still on an emotional high. That was a uh, wild swing of emotions. Obviously, there, uh, we've had we've suffered two of the worst. Uh, we've, we were up 38-10 to 10 against the Colts in one playoff game, 21-3 to 3 against the Titans in another. So we're usually in the opposite position. So it was, very, it was awesome. It was incredible to be on the other side of that, and I'm still... I'm still. I've already rewatched the game once. I'll probably rewatch it again later this week. To be completely honest, but for those of you who don't know, Zach is a massive Chiefs fan. So I was a little bit worried about him for a while on Sunday. Texans got off to a hot start. Then the Chiefs came back and ended yeah. up blowing out the Texans themselves. So it ended up being a good Sunday for Zach. But of course, Zach is also our recruiting analyst here at Ohio State. We wanted to bring him on this week because. Literally, as we were recording our podcast last week, Ohio State got a commitment from Jalen Johnson, a defensive back for the 2021 class. And then last Wednesday, Ohio State got a commitment from Donovan Jackson, an offensive lineman from Texas. So just what should people know about those two guys in particular? Um, well, first, Donovan Jackson, because I wrote about him for uh, for Saturday. If you want, guys want to check that out on the website. Um, he, the, both of these kids are they're good kids. They're high-character kids, and that's going to be, I mean, that's something that we talk about ad nauseum for, um, for Ohio State's recruiting classes in 2020 and 21. Um, high-class, high-character kids who come from, uh, from good families. Uh, on the field, though, Donovan Jackson, he... <laughs> He's, you watch his tape. He's just an absolute monster. He comes off the, he comes, jumps off the tape in that regard. I mean, he's he plays at offensive tackle down in Texas, um, but he's going to be an offensive guard at the next level. And truly believe that he could be. I mean, he has all the makings of being the next great Ohio State offensive lineman. Um, he has the he has the strength, the speed, the athleticism, the length, all that that you want. Jalen Johnson um, comes from Cincinnati LaSalle. Comes from a winning pedigree. Helped them win their fourth state championship in six seasons um, back in December. He was actually covering a future Ohio State um, receiver, 21 commit, Jaden Ballard in that game, and those two kind of got closer um, after that game. But uh, he's another. He's He's one of those tweeners. He, he's recruited as a safety and an outside linebacker. Could fit that bullet position. But, again, as you and I have talked about, as we've all talked about, we have to kind of wait and see what that position becomes in the future. But he does seem to fit that mold of the bullet. That's something that Al Washington and the other coaches have talked to him about becoming. 
Um, but he does. He has this. He has the size and speed to be able to cover um, um, tight ends and potential receivers, but also help in the run game. So, two solid gets. Even though Jalen Johnson is coming as a three-star recruit, he's uh, he's still a good get for the Buckeyes. Ohio State's class of 21, 2021 right now has nine commits. Six of them are ranked in the top 100 nationally, those being Jack Sawyer, Kyle McCord, Marvin Harrison Jr., Ben Chrisman, Donovan Jackson, and Jaden Ballard. They also have Reed Carrico, talented linebacker from Southern Ohio, as well as Sam Hart, a tight end who just committed a few weeks ago. Right now, this class is ranked number one in the country. It's obviously still early. There's a long way to go. But is this class shaping up to be one of Ohio State's best recruiting classes ever? Uh, one of, absolutely. I mean, and we've been talking about for probably like two months now of could Ohio State land its first ever number one ranked overall uh, composite recruiting class in program history, the history of the modern recruiting era is still shaping up to be that way. I mean, they have the momentum right now to where they could, they're going to keep adding on to this this offensive line class that could end up being very special. And it's obviously the 2017 class is what everybody, every class looks up to, right? I mean, that's widely considered the best um, top to bottom recruiting class in, in their history. And it's funny because you look at the 2020 class and it's similar to 2017 in terms of talent. But 2017, while they were on the defensive side of the ball with Wade Okuda, Chase Young, 2020s is on the offensive side of the ball with with all these receivers and Paris Johnson coming in. And it seems like the 2021 class could end up shaping up to rival the 2020 class as well. And I, it's going to end up being a top three class in the nation. Uh, and it certainly is going to have a chance to be um, fighting for top dog right up there with uh, Clemson and Alabama in the end. The 2020 class is almost wrapped up at this point. We'll bring you back on in a few weeks to kind of dive even deeper into the 2020 class. But there is a few weeks left here. The National Signing Day coming up on February 5th. What are the Buckeyes looking to accomplish on the recruiting trail? I believe the contact period starts Friday. What are they looking to accomplish over these next few weeks? Are there any more commitments they're going after or just anybody that they're going to be trying to talk to, trying to build relationships on the trail the next few weeks? I mean, first of all, Kerry Coombs, right? <laughs> hiring hiring uh, him back is their, obviously their number one priority right now and it, it, from everything we're hearing, multiple sources. And Zach will be hoping that comes yeah. next week. Yes, that exactly. Because I if mean, the Chiefs beat the Titans, we're, then... There's a definite chance that could come next week. We're hoping we're hoping the announcement comes sooner rather than later. Is all is all I'm saying from a personal standpoint. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, his his hiring is um, they're just basically playing the waiting game. It sounds like at this point, which means Cameron Martinez, he's there. He's the number one priority to to lock up to make sure he has not decommitted. He has stayed committed, but getting him to sign is their number one priority. Number two would be Jameer Gibbs. Um, he's going to be taking an official visit this coming weekend once the dead period is over. And it sounds like he's wanting to stay in the South. I talked to him briefly for like five minutes after the All-American Bowl. And, I mean, he, we talked about, briefly about his love of the South. And but and he said he's coming to Ohio State, doesn't have anything specifically that he's looking at, um, just wants to get a vibe of the place. It doesn't sound too promising, but Gibbs is there. Gibbs and Martinez are the last two to keep an eye on because I mean the recruiting class is full, but I mean they would they would find ways to get the both make sure that they can sign both of those two. But sign like Martinez is um, yeah he's their he's their number one priority at this is there point. Any reason for fans to hold out hope for a Zach Evans commitment? 
I mean, not really at this point. It sounds like, I mean, from uh, Larry Monroe's Jeremy Birmingham reported that uh, Zach Evans, he was the one contacting Ohio State, not the other way around. And it doesn't sound like that relationship will be, I mean, they would have to put it on light speed at this point with two weeks left. And uh, I don't think that, I don't think that Ohio State side is going to be comfortable enough with the relationship there to, to be able to sign him within two weeks. Yeah, for those who don't know, Zach Evans, five-star recruit. At one point, I think he was the number one overall prospect in the class, was signed with Georgia, but he's had some off-field issues. Georgia released him from his national letter of intent. People have speculated all along, would he be a guy that maybe Ohio State would go after to try to get that, that elusive, highly touted running back recruit? But we also know that Ohio State's been big on going after high-character guys in recent years. Not quite sure if he's a guy they want to take a gamble on. You mentioned Kerry Combs. Putting your objective hat on for a <laughs> moment. Obviously, Ohio State would like to have Kerry Combs working for them this week and getting out there on the recruiting trail. But there's a chance if the Titans beat the Chiefs on Sunday, we, we think he's going to be the higher. We don't know that anything can happen until it's finalized, but all indications are pointing toward whenever the Titans season ends, Kerry Combs will be coming to work for Ohio State. Do you think if, if the Titans make the Super Bowl, and they might not have him at all during this upcoming recruiting period. Do you think that hurts the Buckeyes on the recruiting trail at all, or ultimately would a Super Bowl run help them in the long run? I mean, in the immediate future, I think it absolutely would hurt them just because there's not, even though Cameron Martinez is being assured that, yes, it's it's Kerry Combs coming in, you don't know until you know. I mean, until it's official, until it's signed on a dotted line, you don't know that he's coming in. So in the immediate, immediate future, it might, and I wrote about this uh, for last night's Hurry Up. Um, the, the Super Bowl is February 2nd, National Sign Day is February 5th, so you would almost have to announce the Kerry Combs hire like immediately Monday or Tuesday after they the Super Bowl. Would. Which, yeah, uh, he would be nursing a hangover, I'm sure, but, uh, or at least, um, yeah, so I, we'll see. But in, in the long run, it. Kerry Combs going to the Super Bowl, especially winning a Super Bowl, would do nothing but good things for Ohio State's recruiting. I mean, just imagine him sitting there in living rooms or going to high schools and just being able to kind of slyly flash that that Super Bowl ring, start itching his his uh, his cheek or something, showing off that that ring. I mean, a Super Bowl run, yeah, absolutely. In the in the immediate future, might hurt, but in the long run, it would do wonders. For them. That's already such a big part of his reputation is his ability mm-hmm. to bring his ability to develop NFL defensive backs, develop five guys in his first stint at Ohio State who went on to be first-round NFL draft picks. So that's certainly a big reason why they're bringing him back. It's going to be a huge selling point in the recruiting trail. And what the Titans are doing in the playoffs right now, I don't think that can hurt. Final question for you, Zach. You were at the All-American Bowl a couple weeks ago, and you had a chance to watch a bunch of Ohio State's 2020 signees in person. Who were a couple guys who stood out to you the most? Uh, it's the obvious. I mean, quarterback C.J. Stroud and offensive tackle Paris Johnson. Uh, first, Paris, I mean, he went up against uh, Brian Brissy, the Clemson defensive end, number one overall ranked player in the country. And it was funny because they're the number one overall ranked player at their respective positions. They went up against each other one-on-one in drills, and each one got the better of the other. It was really – I thought it was really cool to see that. And then talking – I talked to Paris after – um, a couple of days later for about 20, 30 minutes. And it was interesting to hear what he had to say. He he liked that he got beat. 
because it taught him something about going up against that type of elite level talent that he could end up facing potentially down the road in a college football playoff uh, setting. And he learned he learned different techniques as, as far as um, what he needs to do to be able to prepare for guys like that. And with Stroud, it, it was one series. He, I know he got a ser- uh, second series late late in the game, but that first series, he just he showed the escapabilities. He showed that mobility. And uh, um, like you pointed out, Dan, um, during that game, uh, when you're watching it, during that, that what should have been a touchdown throw, he showed that escapability in the pocket. He didn't show any fear. He ran around, kept his eyes downfield the whole time, and delivered an absolute dime to the back of the end zone that should have been a touchdown. And it it reminded you of Justin Fields. It did. I mean, I, you you hate to say it. I mean, he's a Heisman Trophy yeah. finalist, and like you don't want to make comparisons between an 18-year-old and someone who just had a fantastic season like that. But it's, it's impossible not to notice um, the similarities between those two. And I know the comparisons are Dwayne Haskins to C.J. Stroud, and that's even something that Stroud has said in the past. Um, and he said to me that the coaches have told him, we see you as a Dwayne, but they also see him as a Justin Fields type because he, he's not known, Stroud is not known for uh, for really his running ability, at least not during his senior year at Rancho Cucamonga. But he said one of the reasons for that is we didn't have a backup, so my coach told me, don't run. It's not going to be like that uh, this season when when he's in training camp or uh, when he's trying to win that backup spot. So there, there is no reason not to be excited about C.J. Stroud if you're an Ohio State fan. I think you buy stock now. He's got a he's got an incredible future. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy to compare a high school <laughs> kid and say he's going to be the next Justin Fields because, like you said, Justin Fields is phenomenal. Justin Fields was the number two overall recruit in his class. So. CJ's not quite at that level, but there is some rumblings that maybe he ends up as a five-star by the end of this class. But that's the kind of trajectory that he's been on. And certainly just watching him, making, you, you can see the physical traits are there. You can see why Ohio State recruited him. It's going to be really interesting to watch that quarterback battle coming up this spring. CJ Stroud and Jack Miller, both early enrollees, competing maybe to be the backup this year. And most likely one of those guys is going to be the starter in 2021. So, it's going to be fun to watch those guys. We always appreciate your insight, Zach, and we'll have you back on again soon to, to talk some more football. All right, thanks, guys. Another thing we wanted to talk about on this week's episode was our all-decade team for Ohio State sports because if you haven't seen it yet on 11 Warriors, this week and next week we are doing a 2010s in review series where we're looking back at some of the best in all different categories on – Ohio State sports and uh, we'll probably talk about it a little bit next week too of some of the the ones that we have coming up next week as well but we started off our series for the 2010s in review by doing our all-decade football and basketball teams and we'll start by talking about the the all-decade football team because there's always some hard decisions that have to be made here when you're you're considering the all-decade football team because you think about all the players that Ohio State has had over the past decade, all the All-Americans and first-round NFL draft picks have the numbers here. They had 23 first-team All-Americans, more than 60 first-team All-Big Ten players, more than 60 NFL draft picks in the 2010s. So some difficult choices. Here's here's I I was the one who picked the team, so you can direct your anger at me if you don't like the choices. But 
the staff did give me some input as well and, and influenced a few of the picks. I didn't deliver any. You should deliver all your hatred towards Dan, but if you like to pick, I also had input in that pick. <laughs> Fair enough. We just want to get that out there. So the picks fit we went with, I went with, however we want to go with. There's Dwayne Haskins at quarterback, Ezekiel Elliott at running back, Michael Thomas, Devin Smith, Curtis Samuel at wide receiver, Jeff Hireman at tight end, an offensive line of Jack Muhort, Andrew Norwell, Pat Elfline, Billy Price, and Taylor Decker, Chase Young and Joey Bosa at defensive ends, Michael Bennett and Jonathan Hankins at defensive tackle, Ryan Shazier, Raekwon McMillan, Darren Lee at linebacker, Jeff Okuda, Denzel Ward at corner, Malik Hooker, Von Bell at safety, a few specialists. We had Blake Javiel at kicker, Cam Johnson at punter, Liam McCullough at long snapper, Jordan Hall and Jalen Marshall as the returners, and of course, Urban Meyer as the head coach of the 2010s. I've heard of him. He had a pretty good. He had a pretty good run. He certainly, if we're talking about the defining figure of Ohio State football in, 2000, in the 2010s, you have to start with Urban Meyer. Of course, a lot of it starts with the quarterbacks, and and this was by far the toughest decision, picking between quarterbacks, because really there's five guys who you could consider. You had Braxton Miller, who was really Ohio State's first superstar of a decade, two-time Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year, three-year starter, fantastic player. Then you have JT Barrett, who holds almost all of the career records for an Ohio State quarterback, four-year starter. You have Cardale Jones, who relieved an injured JT Barrett at the end of a 2014 season and had the most iconic free free game stretch maybe in Ohio State history to lead them to a national championship. Oh, and you have Justin Fields, who came in this past year and was a Heisman finalist in his first year of a Buckeye and absolutely has a case for being the best quarterback of a decade. And if we were doing this exercise a year from now, he might be a clear-cut choice. I went with Dwayne Haskins because... I think Dwayne Haskins had the best individual season of any of them, as we talked about earlier on the show. School record, 70% completion percentage. School record, 4,831 passing yards. School record, 50 touchdowns. And You're talking about an Ohio State team in 2018 that had statistically the worst defense in school history, did not have a strong running game, and Haskins really had to carry that team with his arm, and he carried them to 13 wins. In my opinion, he was the best quarterback of the decade based on what he did in that one season. Of course, the counter-argument to that is, well, he only started for one season. His career numbers are not the same as JT Barrett and Braxton Miller. Absolutely valid arguments there. I, I put it out to a staff poll and making a pick. And it ended up basically being a freeway tie between Braxton Miller, J.T. Barrett, and Dwayne Haskins. So I ultimately had to make the choice. I went with Dwayne Haskins. Colin, you voted for Braxton Miller on the staff poll. What what made you decide to go that direction? Uh, I had no idea what to do because you look at those names and you're like, how am I supposed to parse through this? I just think there's such a strong argument for each of them. I think that the, it's interesting if you compare Dwayne Haskins and Justin Fields even because – you're, you're talking about comparing Dwayne Haskins to Braxton and JT, but at the same time, I think your argument for Dwayne is also largely that Dwayne was the best of them. Um, I think Dwayne had the best season. I also think if you made me go out and say everybody's healthy, 
your quarterback, you can pay a quarterback to win a game tomorrow. Um, I would probably pick 2019 Justin Fields. Um, maybe that's recency bias. I don't know. But I'll be honest, I was, when I, my debate internally was mostly between Dwayne and Justin because I feel they were the two best quarterbacks of a decade. And then when no one on the staff voted for Justin, then I decided, well, we're not going to go with Justin. But I probably would have put Justin on the team before Braxton and JT. And it's simply because, like you said, if I'm if I'm picking a quarterback to lead a team full of Ohio State players to go win a football game, I'm picking between Dwayne and Justin, and I might pick Justin. Yeah, I I, I, I think I would pick Justin. Um, I think it's it's really hard. Um, to determine like you have to essentially pick something and like this is the reason I'm gonna choose this person and I just think each of them have such a strong argument I really like I don't think you can go wrong with any of these guys um, the reason why I think you made the right call with Haskins over um, Fields is essentially like you said I just think Haskins had the better season they needed more from Haskins than Ohio State ever really needed from Fields like he he won them games he kept them in games he was unbelievable for them that year, and not to say Justin didn't. Not to say Justin wasn't great, but you know, Dwayne Dwayne Haskins, like you said, had a defense that was absolutely awful. He had a running game that really wasn't that high powered. It was Dwayne Haskins through the air. It was that all year. Uh, Justin had a lot more. There, there were a lot. There were a lot more surrounding pieces that were going well um, around Justin. Sure, I think Justin's arm, Justin's legs have something to do with that, but you know. I, I give a lot of credit for to Dwayne for that. Um, I have no idea why I picked Braxton. I, I, I really did. Um, I looked at all those names. And I was like, there's really no um, reason to not pick any of these guys. Like when I was thinking back, like here's I, like I don't ever want to lie. I didn't really watch a ton of Braxton Miller games at his peak because I was uh, still in high school and I was a West Virginia fan and not an Ohio State fan. So like I wasn't I wasn't tuning into every single one of his games. But what I remember from that time is, you know, when Urban Meyer comes in, it's it's it was the Braxton Miller show. Braxton, if they didn't have Braxton Miller, they would have been in, they would have been in trouble in a lot of games. And I, Braxton Miller was the most I think you could say he was arguably the most dynamic player of the decade. And and he, they needed him as, as a bridge to the Urban Meyer era, and he was, Urban Meyer always said elite, like, he was elite at that time. Who's West Virginia's quarterback of a decade, Pat White? I don't want to talk Smith. about this. <laughs> also, by the way, I think Pat White uh, played in this decade. Did, did he not play <laughs> no, this decade? No, no, yeah, no, it's Geno Smith, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I would be able to tell you uh, about the all-decade West Virginia team in the 2000s, less of the 2010s. I think that 2000s one would have been nicer. <laughs> a little bit more success. Don't bring up 07. Another really tough choice had for the Ohio State all-decade team for me was, was Curtis Samuel versus K.J. Hill. And I'll be honest, I made a last-minute switch here because I initially was going to go with K.J. Hill because pretty obvious reasoning there. We're talking about the all-time leader in – career receptions at Ohio State. A tremendously consistent player for the Buckeyes in the receiving core. An excellent slot receiver. But as I was writing it, I kept going back to, and a lot of it kind of goes back to what you were just talking about with quarterbacks, of if I'm building a team, who do I think offers more to my team? And as good as K.J. Hill was, Curtis Samuel was a unique player where his ability to both catch passes and run the ball. And if you look at his overall numbers, 
his receiving yards weren't as good as KJ, but he had he had more overall yards because of his contributions as a runner. And I think back to that 2016 team where their offense really struggled that year, and he really was their offense. He was the guy who carried that offense that year at that H-back role. And it was really the only real true H-back that Urban Meyer had, the, the Percy Harvin role that was hyped up when Urban Meyer came to Ohio State. By the end of his run of Paris Campbell and K.J. Hill, it was really just a slot receiver. I think that's probably what it's primarily going to be going forward. But Curtis Samuel, he just offered a different dimension to that offense. And when I was thinking about putting together a receiving core with Michael Thomas and with Devin Smith on the outside, I just think Curtis Samuel offers a little something different that gives that offense a different dimension. But that one was a really tough choice for me. Yeah, I, I really wish you kept K.J. Hill so we could have argued about this, but I, I definitely would pick Curtis Samuel. And, and it's not to minimize what, what K.J. Hill has done in his career. I mean, he's going to leave as the all-time leader in, in career receptions. Yet at the same time, I just think back to that 2016 offense, and, and like that's a year where Ohio State was so bad on offense that it, they turned over their offensive coordinators. Um, there was one player who was dynamic on that offense, and it was Curtis Samuel. And he kept them in games. Without him, they don't beat Michigan. Without him, they have so many more struggles on that side of the ball. I just think he was so dynamic. He was so important to that team that it's really that, that one year is why I would pick Curtis Samuel. He was just different. Another tough choice, and one I think reading through the comments on the website, probably the most disagreement with my picks was with leaving off Marshawn Lattimore at corner. I went with Denzel Ward and Jeff Okuda. A lot of people thought I should have put Marshawn Lattimore over Ward. There were a couple people that, that said they would have put Marshawn Lattimore over Okuda as well. Realistically, very tough choice. All three were fantastic. Okuda was my top choice at corner because he was a unanimous All-American for all the great corners Ohio State had in the decade. He was the only one who could say that. I think Okuda was the most consistently dominant corner and coverage of the entire decade. And again, that's saying something because we're not even talking about Gary on Conley and Eli Apple, who were also first-round picks here and were also great. But I thought Okuda and, and Ward, their, their two All-American seasons that they had were phenomenal just in terms of how dominant they were in coverage. Lattimore had more counting stats. He had more interceptions. Another one of the cases that people made in the comments was Lattimore being a bigger guy than Denzel Ward. If you're just fielding a team to go up there and win, they felt like Lattimore offered a little more than Ward. Another thing I factored into that, even though I was focusing primarily on what for each of them was their third seasons at Ohio State, where they were dominant players, Okuda and Ward were contributors their first two years. They did. Their second year, certainly, they were heavy within the rotation. First years, they contributed a little bit as well, whereas Lattimore, he was hampered by injuries his first two seasons at Ohio State and really didn't play much at all. So my feeling was slight lean toward Okuda and Ward, but I certainly understand the sentiment of, of people thinking Marshawn Lattimore should be on there because he was fantastic too. Which direction would you have gone with that, Colin? Okuda's the lock to me. I think that you're right that, that he is the lock. Um, he was so incredibly dominant this year, 
and it comes off of last year against Washington when I just think, I really think, without that game, I think he would have entered uh, the 2019 season being on the radar um, of NFL teams and, and, and maybe being well-regarded by NFL teams. But he entered the season as potentially the number one cornerback Honestly, largely in part of that game, uh, he was just incredible in that game, and he continued that. And, and really, no team figured out any way to pick on him at all. Um, I and he like 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 you said, he's just a prototypical cornerback. He's got these long, lanky arms. He's fast. He's smart. He's really got. It. He's the total package. And like you said too, he's also the multi-year guy. And and that to me is why I think you did make the right call with with Ward over Lattimore. Um, he he contributed in multiple years, and not to say like I think I think Marshawn La- Marshawn Lattimore could have, but those hamstring injuries really um, kept him out um, until until he had his breakout season. Also, um, like they were both just so good in that last year that it's not like Marshawn was so much better than Denzel in that last year. Like it's this isn't the JT Barrett over Dwayne Haskins because of longevity. It's like these guys were both awesome. Right. And so, like, yeah, I guess we're gonna, you're just going to go with the guy who has been really good for more for two years instead of one year. So, yeah, it makes sense in my opinion. If you told me, hey, Ohio State has to go win a game, which two corners could you pick? I would probably go Lattimore and, and, and Okuda. But I think Ward's more deserving on this team. Anyone else, when you look at my picks, is there anyone else that stood out to you as, man, I can't believe he didn't put this guy on there? No. no um what stood out is that this team is really freaking good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're... In all honesty, like, that's really this thing. list, almost every single player on this list is playing in the NFL right now. They, they, they all have been in the NFL, or if we're talking about Chase Young and Jeff Okuda, they're going to be there very soon. They're going to be top five picks, most likely, both of them. So, a lot of talent, a lot of talent who didn't make the team. And, and the interesting thing is there's... You know, even some guys that are still on the team who I didn't think were quite there yet, but you could argue could be on there. Or, again, if we were doing this a year from now, which, which some people, for whatever reason, argue that the decade ends in 2010. I think most people have it as 2010 to 2019, but some people argue if the decade is actually 2011 to 2020. I don't know. I don't who know. knows? I really don't care, to be honest. But uh, in, t- in terms of this past decade and you know guys who if we were doing this a year from now could be on there Justin Fields being the obvious one someone in our comments said they would take Wyatt Davis over Andrew Norwell and that's one I'm not quite there yet because he's only started for one year all those guys I had on the offensive line were all multi-year starters but Wyatt Davis first team All-American in his first year at Ohio State if he comes back next year and does that again well then yeah, we're absolutely going to be talking about one of the greatest guards in Ohio State history, period. Certainly somebody who's who's making that kind of push to put himself there. I also saw somebody in the comments asking about Chris Olave, and has he not done enough yet? And I would say, truly, the answer would be yeah. He hasn't done enough yet because the guys we're talking about at wide receiver with Michael Thomas and Devin Smith and Curtis Samuel and even K.J. Hill and Paris Campbell – I don't think Chris Olave's career is quite at that point yet, but next year, I think he absolutely could be. I think the kind of year he had this year, 
obviously starting out as a freshman with that performance against Michigan. If he comes back next year and has the year I think he's capable of, which I think is being one of the best wide receivers in the country, then we'll absolutely be talking about him among the recent greats of Ohio State football as well. Yeah, I, I just want to go back to um, what you said earlier because I actually forgot a name when you said, is there anyone who you would have uh, added? It's not someone who I would have added, but it's someone who, if they were healthy, it's like, shoot, I wish we could have this debate. But like, God, Nick Bosa. Yeah. What did we, what did we, what did, what could we have seen with Nick Bosa and Chase Young in 2018 together? And you just, you'll never know. But like, he's the guy who, you know, could he have had 16 and a half sacks? Maybe. And that one would have been right up there with quarterback on toughest debates, I think, if Nick Bosa had had a healthy year because it was pretty easy to pick Chase Young and Joey Bosa. But if Nick Bosa had had that kind of season, to leave any one of those three guys off, man, that would have been hard. And even even leaving a guy like John Simon off, that's a guy who really deserves all-decade recognition for what he brought to that team at defensive end. But we're comparing the Chase Young and Joey Bosa two of the greatest defensive players in Ohio State history. Mm-hmm. You just can't leave those guys off. Yep. You want to take a couple questions? Yeah, we didn't have too many questions this week, so we certainly want to answer the few that you guys did submit. And a, a couple of your questions this week actually go together because they were asked about the wide receivers, which is going to be one of the most interesting positions, I think, for us to watch all year long, especially the spring and going into the season. And The first question was asked by South Ohio Buck, and he asked, of the wide receiver currently on the roster, is there any word of one or two that gained some momentum during practices, scout team work, or of course of last season? This is going to be repeating myself from last week's podcast, but I think the guy who's the answer to that question is Jamison Williams. I think Jamison Williams is a guy who definitely made an impression in his first year on his coaches and we didn't see him play a lot and I think the main reason for that was there just wasn't room for him in the rotation with Austin Mack, Benjamin Victor, KJ Hill, Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Mack and Olave at the Z spot, Wilson and Victor at the X spot on the outside. It just wasn't really a place for him in the rotation. We did see the games that Austin Mack was out with an injury that he did play some in those games. But I think next year, I think he's a guy. Olave is going to start. Garrett Wilson's going to start. But I think Jamison Williams is also going to be a guy who has a big impact in that receiver room next year. And there's certainly some talented freshmen coming in. There's some other veteran guys as well. Guys like Jalen Gill and Jalen Harris and Cam Babb, if he can get healthy, to who will also be trying to get in that rotation. But I would say if I was going off confidence level, other than Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, who's the biggest lock to be in the rotation of those guys, I'd go with Jameson Williams. Yeah, I think he's, he's the answer. Um, you just you didn't hear a ton um, when talking to other players and coaches during bowl week and whatnot of um, – or even at all really during last season, you didn't hear a lot of, you know, Jalen Harris is coming. You didn't, you didn't hear some of those names. And, and, and oftentimes during the year you can hear that. Jameson Williams was the guy that I think came up the most. Um, and it, it is it is interesting that, that I really – I didn't hear a ton outside of Jameson, which to me sort of lends itself to our next question about, you know, 
I think these freshmen have, have a real opportunity ahead of them, and I think it's it's really a make-or-break year for, for some of the other veterans who have yet to, uh, or at least returners, I don't know if you can call them veterans yet, but at least returners who have yet to really make an impact at receiver. Yeah, Ginnon Juice asked us, his, his question was very simple, was start, rotate, redshirt. Julian Fleming, Jackson Smith to Chigba, G. Scott Jr. If I have to, I'm guessing you want us to put one in each category. So I think he, I think he just wants us to say just, which. Just wants us to run it down. Yeah, and and I also I I'm gonna edit this a little bit to start and rotate, rotate off the bench or red shirt, and I'm gonna add Mookie Mookie Cooper in there. Well, here's what I'm gonna go with. I don't necessarily I. I I don't think it's really ever smart to bet on a, a true freshman to start. But I will say this, and I and this is, again, kind of a repeat of what I said last week. I'd say this. I think if any of them are going to start as a freshman, my my money would be on Smith Majigba because I think he's a guy who could potentially fill that slot receiver role where they need to replace K.J. Hill. And I think Jalen Gill is a guy who's probably going to get the first crack at being the best starter in the slot, but... I don't know quite what to think of him right now. And so I think one of these freshmen could end up moving into that role. And I think Smith the Jig was a guy with as productive as he was in high school and, and just as well-rounded as his skill set is. I could see him potentially starting and definitely rotating. He's not going to be playing every snap. But I think I could see him potentially starting at that slot receiver spot. So I'd put him. I'd give him the best chance to start. I think Julian Fleming will be in the rotation. My guess is my guess is that Olave will start at Z with Jamison Williams as his backup, and then Garrett Wilson will start at X with Julian Fleming as his backup. I think G. Scott will be pushing for a spot there as well, but I think Julian Fleming, number two overall recruit in the class or something like that, he's going to be too talented to, to keep out of a rotation. So I think he'll be in the rotation. I think he'll come off the bench would be my guess. And then G. Scott, I don't necessarily think he's going to be in a rotation this year, but I also don't necessarily think that means he's going to redshirt because we saw a Jamison Williams this past year who wasn't in the core rotation, but he still didn't redshirt. He still played because they they viewed him, his talent, they wanted him on the field on special teams, they wanted him getting in there when they could. And I think they could take the same approach with G. Scott because we're talking about a top 100 recruit here not necessarily a guy who's a five-year guy. So I think G. Scott will play some. I think that redshirt decision could ultimately come down to just circumstances and how the season goes. But I'm not going to pick G. Scott to be in a rotation, but I'm also not necessarily going to pick him to redshirt. I think Mookie Cooper is probably the most likely to redshirt, in part because he wasn't able to play in his senior season in high school. And, you know, he... That might have slowed his development a little bit. But at the same time, we just talked about that slot receiver spot. It's wide open right now. And he's prob- he's the most natural slot receiver of any of these guys. So he's going to have a shot coming in as an early enrollee to compete for playing time. And there's a chance he ends up in a rotation as well. So any one of these guys is talented enough to end up in a rotation. I-, I think Smith, Najigba, and Fleming are the two that are going to be in a rotation and are going to play the most this year. But... You certainly don't count on any of these guys because they're all really talented. All right. The way I look at it is um, typically what I think Ohio State wants to do is have essentially six 
rotating wide receivers. Two yeah, at I think Z, that's the two idea. at X, two at, two at slot H, whatever you want to call it yeah. these days. I think there are two that are locks. I think Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave are essentially locks. Yes. Shoot, I'd put them to. I'd essentially say they're starting locks. Like I, I think so. I would be really surprised if either didn't start. I think. I'm not sure if it would tell you more about their lack of development or the or development of, of someone else behind them, but I would be really surprised if they didn't start. Beyond them, I'm not sure there's a guaranteed lock to be in the rotation. I think there are a few guys who I think probably will, and that's, I would say, Jameson Williams and Jalen Gill are the guys who I think probably will without being 100% certain. The reasons why are Jameson's speed is just so different, and now he's had a year in the program. He's someone who was really highly re- regarded coming in. Um, and then also, essentially the reason I think Jalen Gill is, 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 is there's a high likelihood of him being in the rotation is just because of the roster makeup right now where they lose K.J. Hill. They didn't really have a backup slot-wide receiver this year. They essentially played five rotating wide receivers and just played multiple tight ends more often than they had in previous years. I think to get back to having a six-wide receiver rotation, I think Jalen Gill will be in that H rotation. And and to me, that, that means that there are at least probably two spots open for, for freshmen. Um, now, that's also you – sh- you should note that – Maybe C.J. Saunders has a sixth year, and if so, he could play. He could play H in that slot, and then you just don't really know what you're going to get out of Jalen Harris, Elijah Gardner, or even shoot, even Cam Bab, um, if he can come back and be healthy finally. Um, and that's just at at the moment. I'm just not going to project them to be in that rotation because we haven't seen enough from them. But you can't just outright discount them. Now that being said. I just think there's enough room for at least a couple guys to, to be in the rotation. Um, I think you're right about Jetson, whose name I just feel like I'm going to butcher if I just go last name. So I'm just going to go Jackson right now. Um, JSN. I, JSN, yeah. JSN, yeah. Let me get that. We'll see what mind. his nickname ends up being because it seems like anytime a guy has a difficult nickname, a difficult name, that he gets like a nickname if they all call him right away. So Please make that fast. I want that fast. That's why I hope he's good immediately, so I know how to pronounce his name. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Smith Najigba. I, I think so. I got it wrong last Smith week. Smith Najigba, yeah. Um, I think that he and I think you're right. He and Fleming are probably the two guys who are most likely to rotate. The question I have is where, what exactly position they're going to rotate, and and which of them can move to the slot. I do think it's interesting that Julian Fleming. He, he got physically developed. I think he's a good blocker right now, uh, as good as you can be coming from high school in, in, in Pennsylvania. But I think that he's, he's a physical guy, and maybe that will lend himself to, to playing earlier. But um, among those four, I think I think you're right. Fleming and Fle- Fleming and Jackson are the two guys who I would say. I don't – It's I, I, I really wouldn't project any of them to redshirt right now. I just think they're really talented. I think that they're they're fast and athletic enough that they can make plays on special teams. They can have a role there, um, but I do say I do think probably two of them, and I would probably pick G. Scott and, and Mookie almost too much because of what they did in their last year uh, of high school and their recruiting ranking. I would probably pick them to not be in the rotation um, initially, but I don't know that that means a redshirt. And, and here's the thing too about the redshirt conversation is. Ohio State's already got two really highly touted receivers coming in next year and or for 2021 that are committed in, in Marvin Harrison Jr. and Jaden Ballard. So I don't think there's a, a huge sense of urgency to redshirt guys because there's a pipeline coming in that 
you're going to expect that you're going to be able to continue to go out and get top receiver talents every year. So you're not you're not as worried about needing to redshirt a guy to preserve his fifth year, but he might never play anyways. And and also they don't want to redshirt them. They want these guys to be so good that they're leaving for the NFL early because right. that means that they just got some real nice production out of them. Right. And all four of these guys are that level of talent mm-hmm. where. After three years, they could be going to the NFL. That's the kind of talent that they brought in in this class. Exactly. Last question for this week. Tomorrow asked us about a, a popular question among readers in recent weeks. It's, what pressure can be brought on the NCAA and Rules Committee and how to have urgency to fix some of the quote-unquote broken rules like targeting and pass interference and inconsistent enforcement before the start of next season? That's a complex question. It's one that's probably above my pay grade because if there was a simple answer to it, I think it would have already been fixed by now. I will say I I talked to Gene Smith last week a little bit about this because, of course, he had expressed some frustration after the Fiesta Bowl about a couple of calls that went against Ohio State. He didn't want to talk too much about it. He had kind of moved on from that and pointed back to you know, some of the missed opportunities that Ohio State had in that game as you know, being a reason for the loss and didn't want to dwell on the missed calls anymore. But he did say that he expected at meetings this offseason that you know he would ask for it to be on the agenda for conversations to be had about the use of instant replay, about having continuing conversations about targeting. I don't think there's any question that these things need to be off-season items of conversation every single year. I, I, I think targeting, I think they actually did make strides in that area this past year with implementing the stipulation that all elements of targeting needed to be confirmed. We saw it with Jordan Fuller during the season where there was one that I think in past years probably would have been called targeting that ultimately was overturned didn't work in Sean Wade's favor I think there's certainly still questions about a play like Wade's where there didn't appear to be any intent why is that still standing as targeting certainly I think instant replay is an enormous question after what happened in the Fiesta Bowl but is there an obvious answer for how to fix these things I don't think so. I think if there was, we'd already be there. Or I wouldn't have to talk about it for two minutes and give you no answer. So <laughs> it's it's hard for me to say, Colin. What, what do you think, Colin? Is there anything that jumps out to you as how to fix some of the officiating inconsistencies in college football? No. <laughs> it's so hard. No, no. Um, There's a reason why we talk about this every single year. Yeah, and then I think that that'll just be the case. I mean, it's... I think you hear about it even more and more now because you can have this outrage on social media combined with the fact that you see a million different slow-mo replays and fans video in the stands and you see so many different angles and all kinds of stuff and it just enrages uh, you further that all of a sudden things will come down to a few referees on a field and a guy upstairs. Yet, I'm not really sure what like what, what should be the fix for some of it. Like what's going to be the fix for inconsistent referees? Shoot, I don't. I don't think. How Better do you fix? Yeah, but, but like you're not. I don't know how. You, like, w- what can possibly be that fix? 
there really can't be that fix. At some point, they're just going to be inconsistent referees. I think the tough thing comes down to how you use replay, when you use replay. I think the targeting call where you eject a player from a player, uh, you eject a player who didn't have uh, malicious intent. I think that's tough. I don't think that I think that they should make strides there. But like inconsistent refereeing, I think is just going to happen. Like that's just a part of the game, and I think it gets more aggravating in the modern age of technology. But you know that 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 is just going to be the case. Um, the question of targeting and stuff like that that'll be an ongoing uh, offseason discussion. I'm interested to see why there are any strides there. Uh, you as a fan, not sure you can have make any pre- put any pressure on the NCAA though. I uh, I appreciate your vigor. Yeah, I, I remember seeing one Fred in the forums a week or two ago challenging the 11 Warriors staff to pressure the NCAA on these issues. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know that Mark Emmert is going to do something because uh, Dan Hope told him as, as much I mean, power I'd as... Like to, I'd like to think I have that power, but the reality is that I don't. <laughs> it's certainly... These are all very valid questions, and so I wish that we had better answers for you because they're absolutely valid questions. Yep. And... You know, I, I will say this. First of all, what number one, officiating is a tough job. It, it, they're, they're always going to be criticized. They're never going to be praised for doing a job well. But it's a really difficult job. I, I officiated flag football for one year while I was in college, and I absolutely was horrible at it. Horrendous at it. We'll never do it again. Absolutely hated it. Just, just wasn't good at it. I think I know football, but trying to make those judgment calls in real time, I was horrible at it. It just wasn't for me. So it's a tough job, and I think that needs to be understood. But especially when we're talking about calls that are made in real time, it is a lot of them are just so difficult to make that snap judgment in a second and see exactly what's happening. I will say in terms of instant replay that I, I, I do think that's the area where there should be First of all, I think there should be more criticism when the replay officials get it wrong. Because if you're going to spend minutes looking over a play, then you should make the right call. And and my, my what I always go back to with replay is, at least when replay really first started, there was a big emphasis on indisputable evidence, and you only overturn the call if you're absolutely sure that it's the correct call. And I think over the years, I think that's devolved more into officials on the field making what they think is the safe call and then relying on replay and spending five minutes watching a replay trying to determine the correct call. My feeling would be, my, my, always, my feeling has always been, if you watch the replay for two minutes and you can't determine what the correct call is, stick with the call that's on the field and move on. Because... It, a play like the play in a Fiesta Bowl where they spent five minutes reviewing it and then overturned it, it, there wasn't conclusive evidence either way. You should have stuck with the call on the field. And I think that's that's the way I would proceed in most situations is if you if the replay doesn't give you a clear answer, then you need to stick with the original call on the field and the onus should be on the officials to attempt to make the most correct call possible in real time Understanding that there's going to be mistakes at times. In terms of targeting, I agree with Colin that I think I think there what there really should be is two levels of targeting where only the Please. most only the most egregious, clearly intentional, trying to knock someone out hits 
should result in ejections and suspensions. And ones like Sean Wade, ones like James Skalski for Clemson on Monday night, the national championship game, which were just accidental hits, those should be, they should be a 15-yard penalty or whatnot. You know, maybe if you get two of them in a game, you're ejected, but it shouldn't be, I don't think you should be automatically ejected for an accidental hit that happens to be with the crown of a helmet. Yes, to me that's the problem. I think that's the problem that's fixable in the short term. The other stuff to me is just really long-term problems, and it's and that's hard to get. But targeting, in my opinion, has, has, to, has to have a, a fix in the fix soon because it, it really does suck the way it is right now. There's no other way to put it. It's really unfortunate when you see someone like Sean Wade in a, in the biggest game of his life get ejected from a game that way. I mean, talk about Clemson, James Skowski. He is going to be suspended for the first half of their season opener next season because his hit occurred in the second half of a game for what did not appear to be an egregious hit. That's just kind of silly. That's just kind of silly to me, if we're being honest. But but that's enough talk about officiating for today. It's enough talk, period, for today because we've got to we've got to move on. We've got to wrap up this week's episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. So I've got to go cover a banger of a basketball game. Yeah, it's currently Tuesday afternoon, and Colin's got basketball game to cover. So next week we'll try to talk a little bit about basketball because there's not a Tuesday night basketball game. So we'll try to talk about it a little bit since we won't be recording. There won't be a basketball game in between when we record the podcast and publish the podcast. But next week we'll talk a little bit about basketball. We'll talk a little bit more about the uh, Decade in Review series. Check that out on LoveWarriors.com. Lots of good content coming over the next couple weeks. And we'll talk a little bit more about 2020, maybe start taking a little bit more of a deep dive into some of the positions on Ohio State's roster for next season and have a depth chart, how the roster could stack up at those positions. So thank you all for continuing to listen to us in the offseason. As always, if you have questions, you have feedback, comment on 11warriors.com, hit us up on Twitter, email us, whatever you got to do. And, and let us know what you want to hear us talk about all off season. So thanks again for listening in this week, and we'll talk to you guys again soon.